Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Exploration Arcanum. My name is Jason. My guest today is Jason Louv. Jason is a journalist, author, occultist, and the host of the Magic Me podcast and School of Magic. Jason is the author and editor of eight books, including Generation Hex and John Dee and the Empire of Angels. Today, Jason is going to discuss with us his long history in the occult, ceremonial magic, politics, and the classic role-playing games Vampire the Masquerade and Mage the Ascension. I'll put links to all of Jason's projects in the description below. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and subscribe to the channel. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I, thank you. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. Uh, you have over 25 years in this space. And to me, I've always considered you an elder statesman. Like someone who I can rely on. So, so you're saying I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have you by a few years, but we're gonna okay. let that go. <laughs> <All> <laughs> but right. can you can you tell me a little bit about how you discovered and got into the occult? Like, what was your aha moment? Yeah, um, yeah. Let me think. So, you know, I'm a I'm a product of the '90s. So, in a sense, the occult was in pretty much all the cool media in the '90s. You know, it's like I I'm a sucker for all of that dark fantasy stuff, White Wolf, World of Darkness, um, uh, Vertigo comics, and so I was just immersed in this stuff um, growing up because it was my favorite genre. And so after a while, like when you're reading stuff about you know, real life magicians and their, their, their explanations for why magic works start to seem a little plausible. Um, it's, I think an obvious step for a teenager, particularly one, um, it, it, with, with, uh, difficulties fitting into society, let's put it that way, um, to become interested in that subject. And so I set myself a challenge, which was if magic was real, what would it be and how could I do it with no, without reading occult books, without anything. And I assumed that I assumed I started from the place that magic is not real. It's made up. Um, and I actually was quite hostile to the idea of it being real, but I decided that I wanted to prove, prove it otherwise. So kind of as an art project, I decided to see if I could make magic real. And I just listed on a few index cards, what would magic be if it was real? And then I tried to go do those things. And a lot of them worked. Um, and then there were other experiences that I was having at that time, synchronicities, you know, anyone who gets into magic can tell you similar stories, synchronicities like Colin Wilson's The Occult showing up out of nowhere at my public library, uh, which is a great beginner's book, uh, which made me take it seriously as an intellectual pursuit. And uh, not only is it an intellectual pursuit, but if you read The Occult, uh, Colin Wilson's book from the 60s, you kind of get the sense that not only is this a legitimate pursuit, but it's like the pursuit. It's it's the pursuit of human evolution um, in, in, a, in a way that is so um, extreme or far, um, not, not extreme, but so out there intellectually that very, very few people would ever dare to even look there. So, of course, I wanted to look there and um, kind of the rest is history. I mean, I ended up very quickly meeting people who actually practice magic, actually practicing magic, actually getting results, going all over the world, going to Nepal, learning shamanism, learning. And I got to a point where, you know, when you first get into magic, you think of it as all the occult books. But then within a couple of years, I realized that what I was actually looking at was um, world spirituality and that every single form of world spirituality had some type of esoteric practice within it. So that became fascinating for me. And I wanted to immerse myself in as many cultures as I could 
I consider this the best form of gonzo journalism. It's like if you if you really want to understand other cultures or if you want to understand your subject, believe as they believe. And uh, so that kind of it went from there to becoming writing about magic. And and, uh, you know, I kind of went on a path with it where I I was out of it for a while. I tried to get away with, from it and I couldn't. Um, and uh, eventually I, just, I, I kind of accepted a teaching position, basically. So uh, that's the unglamorous version. Uh, the, the real version is much more glamorous, but that's that's the unglamorous version. I am also a 90s occultist, uh, Vampire the Masquerade for me. Yes. And, uh, How, dude, 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 okay, stop. We're talking about Vampire Mage for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love those games. You have no idea. I love those games. I still play those games. Like I have a, I have a game. I have a Vampire and Mage group going right now. Those games are phenomenal. Um, oh, we're yeah, going to have to I, do that. We're going to okay, have to do so that because so I'm still playing too. That. I just made a okay. Tremere character for a Vampire uh, version, uh, uh, fifth edition. Um, but yeah. I still play, I still play 20th, uh, the 20th anniversary one because it's more closer to what I uh, was first playing back in, uh, okay. I think I got second edition first. Hell yeah. Uh, this is now yeah. a, this is now an edition war podcast for vampire. <laughs> That's way more exciting for me than talking. <laughs> no. Um yeah, what do you think of 5th edition? Um I I like it, but White Wolf to me kind of they watered it down a lot after the whole issue in Florida with those kids. And Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. I I I don't think they've ever gotten back to the pure gothic punk um aesthetic that they had in the early 90s yeah um i because i besides vampire the masquerade like i first started that was my gateway drug but what really set me off was the craft Uh, ah yes okay we are the same generation then yeah (laughs) (laughs) i saw that in the theater and what what fascinated me the movie itself fascinated me, but the bookstore they went to really fascinated me because it's easy to create a prop, but you don't really create a book. Normally you just grab a book, put it on the shelf as a prop. So I actually started looking at the books that were on the table and I was like, okay, well, what about that one? And this is back when the best you could do was maybe B Dalton's Barnes and Nobles. I guess. I, I haven't heard so, anyone mention B. Dalton's in like <laughs> over t- maybe twenty years, but it's much missed. So I remember wrote Walden down, books. Oh yeah, Walden books. Yeah, Walden books. Yeah. B. Dalton's, and then like Brookstone was like the yeah. real expensive one. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're dating ourselves here, but uh, I I wrote down the names of the books and I took them to the bookstore, and. A lot of the books that were in that movie, I found in the bookstore. So I was like, okay, well, we're on to something here. This, is, this isn't this is just something for a movie. And I think my first book of magic, it was called uh, Norse Magic by uh, DJ Conway. Yeah, yeah, and I'll I know probably, that one. I'll probably get canceled today because that might be considered a closed practice. But it was interesting because I had never learned about runes before. And that was my first experience with practicing magic was with runes. And so then seeing some of the words, 
uh, referred me back to Vampire and Mage because White Wolf was using, while the, the magic in their books was fictional, it was yeah. practical. Like, okay, yeah. I can see that happening. I mean, re reading Mage, even I remember reading the introduction to Mage in seventh grade in like Homeroom. And that, that, that alone blew the top of my head off. Um, I'm actually, I'm trying to collect the entire set of White Wolf books right now because it's my happy place. And, but going back to those books, there's so much real occult information in them. And also like, like so many of those books, it's just like, particularly the Black Dog ones, it's just like, how do they even get away with publishing this then? Yeah. Let alone, there's no way they could publish those books now because they're so extreme. You saw like how much trouble they got into just with some during doing fifth edition but um you know i've had mark reinhagen on on my podcast i talked to phil brucato in one of the very first episodes of the podcast who was the developer you know mark is the creator obviously as you know but people listening this mark created vampire and phil brucato was the developer of mage uh brucato is a practicing neo-pagan basically and he he straight up said like yeah like we put real occult material in there because pretty much everyone he said that everyone who came up with mage was into it and we're basically just college students doing acid and trying to combine acid and role-playing games and that's <laughs> what, what they got so um but yeah um so yeah that that definitely played a role and and um you know, so you can imagine somebody growing up with the, these types of things, or you can't because, well, you don't have to imagine because it sounds like you're in the same position. When you find out that it's actually real, it's, you know, very exciting. So, um, yeah, here I that, am. That, um, okay, so the, for the people listening or watching who may not know Mage Ascension, you have different factions of magical pr practitioners. You have the traditions, you have the technocracy, you have the Nefandi, and you have the Marauders. And then you have different in the individual um, magical practitioners, but the they all use what's called spheres, which are basically different elements of the universe that you can use to do magic. <clears throat> and what made mage stand out for me was that they made the difference between high and low magic. Are uh, I know thirgy is high magic, and I forget the the proper name for low magic like uh, ritual magic and that was the first time i had ever heard that which made me start looking into ceremonial magic because ceremonial magic has always been labeled as high magic and for your and your experience because you wrote a book by john d about john d uh and enochian magic which is considered ceremonial magic is that correct absolutely it's it's the high end it's the high register of ceremonial magic so what led you to write that book? Well, let me, <laughs> um, yeah, I just want to, before we leave the mage tangent, I just want to, I would just, I, I had a thought that sparked off the top of my head. Um, I, it's, I, I'd never get to talk to anybody about this. So, um, the, uh, it's interesting going back to that. You mentioned the factions. It's interesting going back to that game in 2023, because I don't think it aged very well. Like, and what I mean by that is. No, the traditions do, do not seem like the, like you kind of go back and the traditions kind of seem like anti-vaxxers, granola moms, um, you know, Christian scientists, just like anti-science people. And it, the technocracy seems a lot more like the good guys, like they're trying to keep a lid on everything. Um, and so the, like the traditions all seem like kind of vaguely unpleasant hippies and granola moms that would like corner you and yell at you in a coffee shop or something like that. It's actually, it's interesting to see how much our society has changed because I think a lot of the, 
you know, Mark Reinhagen told me this too, like the point of the, what those games in the nineties and of edgy goth culture was to push back against the moral majority. Um, and now obviously the politics of that have shifted so drastically that I, I don't think those games could happen again in the same way. And you can see that with the problems that they're having trying to market it, the almost impossible problems they're having trying to remarket that game in 2023. So anyways, um, it's just an interesting caveat. That, that, that's, sure. actually, that's actually a good point because I was looking at, and yeah, we'll probably spend the whole time talking about White Wolf. But <laughs> um, talking about, talk about magic. Yeah. Um, the original Vampire the Masquerade wouldn't be published today, at least no in way. that form. And a lot of that has to do, at least in my opinion, because the way White Wolf did their original, this is who these people are. Uh, some of it, I think, was based on some stereotypes that, like, for example, the Bruja, for example, or the Rebels, right? But the people who they embraced tend to, to all be from the lower rungs of society or were racist like <laughs> southern racist or something like that and i'm like okay well yeah. i'm sure you could diversify it a little bit more than that <laughs> yeah, there's, some, there's some questionable stuff in those books i mean like world lest i mention world of darkness gypsies one of the worst like do you know about this book like one of the worst publishing oh, yeah. faux pas of all time yeah like some of those books they yeah it's just they did not age well uh but they've they've acknowledged that i mean even phil Bricado says on practically every podcast he goes on it's like look we were a bunch of like early 20s white kids in the 90s we were doing the best that we could but we fucked a lot of stuff up so and i think they they publicly acknowledged that which is which at least the writers that worked on it back then which is good but um but yeah, it also, you know, one of my my big interests in magic is meta-narratives around magic. Because for me, the results you get in magic are a lot, often have less to do with the actual rituals and things that you're doing, or even the decisions you're making, and more about the story, the framework of story, the, the story you're telling yourself that is the framework for your life. So what I mean by that is, you know, for instance, people who have a Christian meta-framework for life, or reality tunnel, if you want to call it like that, will interpret everything through Christianity. Um, and so therefore, you know, they will see any type of magic as satanic as possibly a trick or a trap. Um, they will believe only in their form of magic, which is, you know, prayer to, uh, a, a, a divine intercession and so forth. Um, you know, and it's very same for any other religion and same for modern secularism, same for, by the way, whatever kind of consumer tribe you align yourself with in our, you know, consumer tribe society. Uh, where everyone can find all the people who like, you know, White Wolf or whatever on Reddit. So um, in the 90s, the meta narrative was all like, if you looked at those games or you looked at Vertigo comics or you looked at the occult books that were being published during that time, like Chaos Magic, even Bob Wilson and things like this, uh, just, you know, the legacy of Discordianism in the 90s, you know, the 90s were like the 60s uh, with computers. And I was thinking about this the other day, and I think that the sure. 90s probably... Yeah, I mean, they were a time of a huge cultural flowering, uh, unbelievable, uh, similar to Elizabethan England in a way, uh, a, a time of huge cultural flowering. And part of that, um, I think it ended with Columbine, actually, in the same way that the 60s ended with Charles Manson, uh, that 90s edgelord trench coats and katana culture. Um, 
um, it, you know, ended, ended at Columbine, which happened my senior year of high school. And, and, you know, we were getting attacked and all, all kinds of crazy stuff. But, um, you know, before that, it really was a great time. But the meta narrative was on um, tearing down the system, you know, fighting the status quo, you know, you know, trolling the normies, like all of that stuff discordianism chaos because it wasn't because there was like the 90s were not a particularly chaotic time i mean like like the worst thing that happened was probably um rwanda and bosnia Herzegovina. Uh, but other than that you know outside of things here and there it was pretty chill the most people had to worry about was like the most people you know parents were worried about marilyn manson and eminem and that was about it britney spears um but that was so that was a golden age but that meta narrative magic has been left with and i would i would propose that that meta narrative basically doesn't hold water anymore i mean it's like we had columbine we had 9 11 the country america has you know certainly not nearly as secure as it was in the 90s it's large the world is chaotic and falling seems to be falling apart so for me the kind of meta narrative of oh yeah fight the system it just does it's not that it's not that I disagree with it. It's just that it doesn't make any practical sense. Uh, if anything, people should be trying to um, become the system and uphold the system, particularly people our age, because we're going to get into a situation pretty soon, you know, whether it's 20 or whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, where we're going to have to be the ones running it, running things. So whether, and that doesn't mean being present necessarily it could mean like in culture or whatever it is that you do. It's like, you know, the, the, the uh, um, jet millennials, uh, older Gen X millennials, you know, particularly Gen X is going to come into power first, then it's the millennials. So um, pretty soon, you know, we don't want to be in the same position that the boomers were in, which is they kind of get into power and they're still fighting their parents uh, in some ways. Um, right. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but um, well, that's, those well, are, that's that's kind of my views at the moment. Well, that that's actually a great point you just made because I was listening to your latest episode and you were mentioning about supporting the government in times like these. And By I, the way, I this, is, this is what we call level 20. Le, this is what we call level 20 <laughs> antinomianism. It's like, oh, yeah, you put on an um, a inverted pentagram necklace. Like, oh, yes, you sweet summer child. Let me show you real antinomianism. Today, we're, we're supporting the government. <laughs> I, I did want to ask you about that because there is a, a level of distrust, as I'm sure you're aware of, of the government. But so Absolutely. what led... What led you to to say that in your video yesterday? Like, was, what well, was it that you're seeing aside from what we what you just discussed? Is there something that you're seeing in the in the world right now that led you to want to say yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. By the way, it's a temporary stance. It's a stance at the moment. It's not necessarily forever, um, but I don't really see it changing unless Donald Trump gets back in office or something like that. Not that I'm a huge fan of Biden, but my reasoning is simple: is that the alternative is worse. Right. It's like we're, America has was tremendous, became tremendously weak during COVID. It was already weakening. Uh, we already have an artificially inflated stock market. And, and a lot of America is based on a series of bluffs involving, um, you know, debt and military power and things like this. Um, the alternative is worse. I mean, we're getting weaker. China is getting stronger. Russia is going nuts. Um, uh, God forbid God forbid that the conflict in the Middle East escalates into a regional conflict. I highly hope that that does not happen because that could be 
uh, literally apocalyptic, particularly if Iran gets involved and Iran, of course, is backing Iran and many other states back back terrorism. So, um, yeah, I have some controversial opinions at the moment, but they're basically based on uh, the alternative is worse. I mean, I think that I think that a lot of uh, if you go back to the 90s, a lot of the thinking about the kind of the the smash the system thinking is kind of like the Bill Hicks line of thinking is really kind of like the Noam Chomsky line of thinking. And the Noam Chomsky line of thinking in the eighties was, um, you know, he's who people were taking their cues from, uh, and he's brilliant. He's one of the most important intellectuals of the 20th century. But when he was writing in the eighties, he was basically saying America doesn't have any threats. Therefore, if anything goes wrong in the world, it's probably because we armed those people ahead of time because we wanted to invade them and take their resources. Uh, essentially what he says is there's really no threats to America as Bill Hicks paraphrased him. There's really no threats to America except the ones that we make ourselves. Now that might've been true in the wake of the fall of the Soviet union, when we had that momentary period of like, Oh my God, we win. We're the best ever. Um, but it's all too easy to forget that the lib like the liberal freedoms, the cultural, uh, outpouring, the excitement, um, the ability to be peace, love, and harmony uh, that we saw in the 60s, the 90s, and later many other times, the 70s, and now, um, people have to realize that the only thing that makes the only thing that makes them secure is military supremacy, specifically the atomic bomb. And America won World War II with nuclear might. And in my darkest interpretation of this, the children of the people who won World War II by wading through the killing fields of Europe and then probably unnecessarily dropping two, if you listen to Gorf at all, uh, unnecessarily dropping two atomic bombs on Japan, not to end the war with Japan, but as a warning to Russia, um, which it, you know then created the stalemate of the Cold War. Those people came home with PTSD and alcohol problems, and their kids essentially got to grow up in a world where there were no serious threats out. I mean, there was the threat of Russia. So was, there was the threat of nuclear war. But other than that, there was no ground combat in America. People had to go to Vietnam, right? But um, nothing on the order of what, you know, World War II, 50 million plus, I think 50 or more million people, maybe 100 million people died in World War II. And you read accounts of it. And it's just like, the things that happen, the, the level of cruelty and suffering is just, it just staggers the brain. It just staggers the brain. Um, nothing like that has happened since. There have been small genocides. There have been small outbreaks of really awful conflict. But in comparison to that, nothing has happened. And the reason is because everyone's too afraid of nuclear war. Um, so in my darkest interpretation, the boomers celebrated the fact that their parents had basically dominated the entire planet by dressing up like the people that America genocided in the 19th and 18th centuries and partying. Just it's almost like wearing your enemy's heads on sticks. Now that's a very extremely controversial antinomian opinion, but um, that's what I'm good for. So basically, long long story short, that supremacy is fading. The idea that America is the only game in town is just not true anymore. And frankly, it's kind of arrogant and potentially even racist to look at other countries and say like, "Oh, we're so much better than them." Like if anything ever went wrong, it must have been our fault. It's like, no, you live in a, a world of close to 9 billion people. And most of them believe things that you don't believe. And that's why Mage is such a good game because it shows you, it, it's a game about reality tunnels. It's a game about how belief shapes reality. And there's people all, you know, there's groups of people 
all over this world that believe totally different things than than us and that's beautiful right but to, to but to act like we're the only game in town is just not true and th the world has gotten so violent in the last two three years and we're at the brink of I, we may, I think we're already in World War III, but we're, we may be at the brink of even worse. We have three active um, nuclear conflicts, right? Uh, Russia, Ukraine, um, Israel, Hamas, and uh, China, Taiwan. God forbid India, Pakistan gets thrown into the mix, which is possible because that's also a simmering, long-simmering nuclear conflict. And just this idea that we've, we've lived in this artificial bubble of security for basically everyone's lifetime. There's only a few people left that were born in World War II. And so other than those people, and other th than those people who have been in the many unfortunate conflict periods that have happened since, people really have no idea um, the wolf that is at the door. Because we could easily, you know, Putin could drop a nuke today. Like, I think that that's de-escalated a bit, or Iran could drop a nuke today, or Pakistan, right? And... um you know, I don't think that people understand what they have to lose. Let me put it that way. I think that if actual conflict erupts at that level, everything you take for granted right now will be gone. And the only thing that will be left is war uh, and and your relation to the war effort. Like, it's going to be gone. And, um, you know, America is tending towards total fascism, Christo-fascism. You know, we could easily get the evangelicals in control again. So it's kind of like, this is what we got, right? Now, I never have said ever, in fact, I've spent my entire adult career saying, criticizing the powers that be, right? But all that, you know, it's like, I don't, I have no illusions whatsoever about all the awful things that America has done. I have no illusions whatsoever about all the awful things that Israel has done. But you know what? This is what we got. So let's why don't we kind of you know particularly people who are getting to the age of uh, you or i it's kind of like well you know there, you get to a certain age in life where it's like well if you're complaining it's like well you could also be part of the solution if you wanted um and particularly when you're older and it's just like you know america is us at the end of the day yes it's the elected officials but you know, I don't think conspiracy thinking or thinking that the government is some monolithic entity that is constantly trying to get you um, is necessarily that helpful. Um, I think that, um, you know, the, the country is us, the government is us. Um, and it's deeply threatened right now. And it's threatened in a way that I've never seen in, in, uh, my lifetime right now. And, and, you know, one of my favorite writers is Timothy Snyder, who, who researches genocide. And one of the things that he says is, you know, all governments, all governments kill, like all of them, all governments kill civilians, all of them, right? Um, but when the governments fall, that's when you really have to worry because that's when civilians start killing. And when civilians start killing because there's no policing, that's when you get genocides. And you can see that in, um, well, I don't want to get super into the Middle East, but you know, a lot of the people that committed, uh, assisted the atrocities on October 7th were not Hamas. The Hamas fighters went in first and then civilians went in. And that's something that curdles my stomach because whenever you have civilians actively being offensive in, in war zones, they're not soldiers. They're not disciplined. They're just going to probably going to end up there. Those are the ones most likely to start, start, uh, uh, doing war crimes. Let's put it that way. So well, that's, that's what we don't want. 
Yeah, that, well, that's a good point because a lot of times, a lot of the, the atrocities that we saw in the South, in the American South and after the Civil War, yeah. weren't carried yeah. out by militaries. They were carried out by groups of mobs in random cities. And yeah. it, you're right. It's, it's once the, the discipline goes away of, of the, what type of, even if it's a terrorist organization, there is some type of organization. Once that passes by, then you're left with just random people doing random acts of evil. Yeah. 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 And that's very distra- I mean, I think that's a great example. I mean, Norman Finkelstein talks about, um, you know, in the, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, I mean, when at those lynchings and things like that, it wasn't just the people doing it. It was like people would take time off work to go and watch. And like they would take pictures and hand out postcards and they would take souvenirs from the body. It's just like it boggles the mind. But that's what people are like. If people and, and I think that's something that people need to be very clear about. Um, this is in a sense, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a conservative, but you know, I think at the core of the liberal versus conservative argument, it's really a nature versus nurture argument. And I think that the basic liberal argument is that if, if people are doing anything wrong, it's because of structural factors that have been put on them. That's definitely true in some cases, but it's not true in all cases. And I think that the liberal view is that if you take all the restrictions off people, and I'm talking about liberal in the most extreme expression of it, because uh, nobody is this extreme, but just as a mathematical extremity to demonstrate the, the logic. Um, I think the logic is, you know, if you take all s- systems of social control over, off of people, you get this kind of Rousseauian noble savage, which was a racist idea in the first place. Um, but, you know, you get basically, basically, basically the people are inherently good. And if you just take all these structures on them, they, they will be good. Now, now this is true in many cases. For instance, if you have somebody who um, has grown up in a PTSD environment that is constantly, you know, producing uh, trauma, and then you take them into a calm environment, uh, they they stand a much better um, chance of, you know, their IQ will increase because they're not under, you know, once they get out of fight or flight, like a lot, their their capabilities will expand. It's like if you can heal trauma, these things will come out. At the same time, though, there's lots of people that if you take off the social control completely. We'll just go around torturing and murdering people, and that's just how it is. And so, as bad as as frust, let me put it this way: as frustrating and often as malevolent as governments can be, um, mob rule is worse. Hundred percent, totally. I would really love to talk about your book, uh, John okay. D. and the uh, Angels, and how you yeah. how how you started researching that, and what led you to write that book. Yeah, well, I think when you engage in ceremonial magic, eventually you just get to Enochian. Uh, it's you, you know, Golden Dawn is trading wheels for Enochian, and um, the the I had a lot of really insane experiences doing Enochian in after my first book came out in like two thousand six, two uh, thousand six, and they were I spent ten years trying to figure out what had happened to me um, in terms of the experiences that I had, um, and eventually. I just became so fixated on Enochian that the only way to figure out what I was doing was to write a book because all of the books on it were incomplete or, or, or totally wrong. Uh, certainly, you know, because the only, essentially what I saw was that the only people that had approached D with academic rigor were academics who were interested in him for his place in the history of science and of England. Um, and they were not interested in the occult. And the only people that had approached him from the occult angle um, 
largely were not trained academics. Uh, and, and they wrote excellent books on his occult system of which Lon Duquette's is the best is still the best. They wrote excellent books on the magic, but they left out the context, which was the man himself and his life and why he was doing all of that. So no one had written a book about the whole picture. So I was like, well, okay, I pitched it as a book. And then I ended up having to spend four, four, uh, I wrote an article for Boing Boing. And then I pitched it as a book and I ended up spending four, uh, four, uh, months, excuse me, four years of my life writing it. Um, cause it took that much time to just to sort through that. I mean, it's an unbelievable cognitive overhead because first of all, you have to adopt the mindset of Elizabethan people, which is no small task in the first place. Um, you have to understand Elizabethan English. Uh, and then you have to understand John D's mindset as a subset of the Elizabethan mindset, which is, um, and he was not understood at the time and has largely been completely misunderstood since. So, um, it's kind of like, as I put in the book, it's a little bit like trying to resurrect calculus from, from fragmentary notes if Isaac Newton hadn't completed it. Um, so it just became an, an intellectual obsession basically, and it wouldn't let me go. And that's pretty much my only reason for writing it. I didn't have any type of ulterior motives. Although I found that in the process of writing it, um, uh, really, I was looking at kind of the hard wiring underneath Western civilization and why there were empires in the first place. Uh, so I decided that was actually pretty important um, to write about because that's something that we struggle with. That's a debate we have every day, uh, every day, uh, the legacy of colonialism, right? Well, why don't we take a look at how it started the first place in the first place? Because it turns out there were actually some pretty profound magical and mythical elements to it. It wasn't simply a, a cynical political move. There was some actually pretty profound mythology behind it, um, which is important to understand because just like with religions, mythology uh, turns into unexamined expectations, uh, unexamined um, beliefs and expectations about reality that people are not even not even aware that they're running. Uh, classic case in point for this is Christianity itself, because you can see that like with tons of super social justice people, although they themselves do not consider themselves Christian, they're all running on the same assumptions. They're culturally Christian. They're running on all a lot of the same assumptions. Uh, liberalism in America is essentially New Testament Christianity. Uh, conservatism in America is essentially Old Testament Christianity, yet uh, only the conservatives will openly say that. The, the liberals are in denial about it. And I, I would I would suggest that that's a, a incredible blind spot. What would you say, or what would you say is the role and influence of magic in contemporary society? Like, whereas... I, like, uh, for example, in your episode yesterday, uh, that you, your last episode, you, you asked why did people start getting into and using magic? Um, what do you see as the role of magic in today's society? The role of magic, first and foremost, is always going to be the defense of the individual. Uh, it's always going to be about the first, first, not all totally, but first and foremost. So the role of magic is now, as it always has been, um, to get yourself out of hard situations. Um, and specifically the, the point of magic is for you to identify and align with your true self, who you're truly supposed to be. Right. And it turns out that that's actually kind of difficult because specifically because we have minds that are trained to second guess and pick things apart. Uh, so we need to find ways to route around the conscious mind in order to do that, in order to get into, let's just say, to not bend rationality, to get in touch with um, 
deeper levels of our own psyche in order to get in touch with, let me put it this way. If you can get in touch with deeper levels of your psyche and unconscious, whether that's through magic, which is a very good method or yoga, very good method, psychotherapy, art, whatever it happens to be left brain thinking, right? Um, lateral thinking, you will know yourself better. And if you know yourself better, you will make better decisions that are bet more in line with you. And if you can make decisions consistently that are in line with who you actually are, then you will live a meaningful uh, life instead of one, I'm not saying easy, but you will live a meaningful life that you will have the, um, what everyone lacks in our culture, which is uh, certainty that you are doing the correct thing. Um, and um, a sense of mission and purpose, which is for all the things that our, our culture offers people literally everything, everything except a sense of mission and purpose. That's what magic offers. So magic in many ways is the missing piece because um, you can, you know, you can buy whatever you want off Amazon, but it's not going to fix your, your ills. And psychotherapy, although I'm not against it, is long and expensive. And I'm not setting up magic in, a, in uh, I think they should be done together. I'm not saying magic replaces it. But Matt, the role of magic has always been as a form of self-therapy, self-expression, realignment with oneself, and uh, a way to get ahead in life. So it's, it's a secret weapon for anyone brave enough to use it. Uh, and I would suggest that uh, our times are extreme enough that, uh, that our times are so extreme that that's why so many people are interested in it. Um, very few, much fewer people were interested in it when things were much better. Uh, magic always comes into its own during times of crisis and collapse. That's why everyone got into it in, in the former Soviet Union after the fall of, um, of communism. So, um, in terms of broader society, um, outside of the stuff that I've already said, you know, my basic response is pretty much what I've said. I think people need to continue to drop the, now, of course, people are going to call me a shill and all this. I guarantee you, no one's paid me to say this. These are my own devilish ideas. Um, I, I think that I would suggest that upholding community and society, uh, is a good script examples of what that could look like starting a community outreach program, starting a community garden with magical intent in it or anything. It doesn't have to be magical. Um, but, um, anything that you can do to nurture and uphold the society that we're in, um, so that people don't continue running around, running around, burning it down, you know, like all of there are, America is a society that is almost, um, that's karma. America is a society with tremendous, like, like all societies, incredibly bad karma. Um, I think that at the root of America is the issue of slavery and it will probably never be resolved. And it's a crack in the heart of the entire country. Um, and that may never get resolved, but it's kind of like, okay, well we have, we have the cards that we've been dealt. What are, what are we going to do with them? Uh, I would suggest at least don't, don't burn the deck. Um, at least let's talk about how to play the cards that we have. Um, other than that, I mean, I think that, you know, we talked about role-playing games at the beginning of this, of this call, uh, role-playing games, um, are a tremendous way, just like magic for people to get together and be creative and imaginative. Uh, and magic is very good for that too. So I think that it can fulfill the role of, uh, I think that it can play a role in social cohesion, just like religion always has, particularly in a time when people are unbelievably isolated from each other. Uh, I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, but that's what came to me in the moment.
No, that's great. And that actually makes me think of that book by Grant Morrison, Super Gods, where uh, it's the comic book characters as new mythology, basically. So like mm-hmm. Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman are the, you know, the sun god, the god of the underworld. And uh, I forget what uh, one of them is supposed to be like Diana or Aphrodite or something like that. Mm-hmm. And basically, they're they're the new gods. The they replace the ancient gods that we used to have, and they're the the modern equivalent. Um, speaking of which, uh, you were the occult expert on DC's Constantine City of Demons. So I've always wanted to ask you, how did that come together, and what what how did they approach you? Uh, they just emailed me actually. They're like, we need, we need someone to be on this DVD. We looked you up. You don't seem that controversial, surprisingly. Um, would you like to do that, do this? And I was like, uh, yeah, fuck yes. I would like to be on the constant DVD, <laughs> uh, because I've been upset. You know, I, I'm like a Hellblazer super fan. I have been forever. I love Constantine. That's yeah. my favorite character. Yeah. It's like, yeah, for sure. I mean, John Constantine is one of the greatest fictional characters ever created in any medium, as far as I'm concerned. And you can tell because every, every single, like literally every single fantasy writer since has like ripped off a John Constantine character. You see it in TV shows, like everything. So, um, yeah, I mean, I basically just went to the Warner Brothers lot, which was right by my house. I used to work right by there. Um, actually used to work in the same building as DC entertainment. So I, I just went back to the lot and they brought me into a conference room and asked me some questions and that was pretty much it. So, um, but that was an exciting, exciting to do. I watched, I watched your segment more than I actually watched the movie because <laughs> I just I still love... haven't seen the movie. So, Oh, it's good. It's really good. If you, if you love Constantine, you'll like that. And I love that they carried over the guy from the Constantine TV show into the animated stuff. Because Matt Ryan is by far the the most perfect John Constantine representation. Sorry, Keanu that show's Reed. supposed to be good, right? I didn't I didn't see the show. Constantine was, was good. good. I was actually surprised okay. it got canceled after one season. It was really good. Um, there's one more question I wanted to ask you because you did some work with uh, Google on artificial mm-hmm. intelligence, and tell me a little bit about that. What's your what's your feel of AI? Does it have any relation to the occult metaphysics? How, how do you feel about that? That's a big conversation. That's a big topic. And it's a topic that my thinking has changed a lot on over the last two, three years as AI has actually rolled out to the, the public. Um, I think that, I mean, if you want my full opinion on that, you can Google people listening to this can Google Jason or look up Jason Louvre, Google, uh, or it's Jason Louvre Serpentine Gallery um, on YouTube. And you can see the talk that I gave about it. Um, but essentially I think within AI, you, you've got a ton of camps and, and it changes very quickly, but in general, you've got a couple camps. One is the kind of people who are wholeheartedly injecting all of this mystic stuff into it. So examples would be the idea that AI is going to become a God and kill all of us. It's like, well, we don't know that. Okay, that, that's not a that's not a foregone conclusion. So people that have fallen not fallen for it, but people who have gone into that, myself a bit, Sam Harris, um, uh, Nick Bostrom at the University of Oxford is one of the, the most. He's probably the most important researcher on that. Um, and so, you, and then you've got people who are kind of like on the like AI is going to kill us. It's going to get rid of all the jobs. Like we've created a monster. Science has gone too far. Camp or people who are kind of like worshiping it almost which is like the transhumanist kind of ray kurzweil uh uh cults 
Um, and then on the other side, you've got mostly engineers who are saying like, calm, like, please calm down. This is literally like just a calculus equation looking at language models, right. you know, on graphics cards. And it's, you know, the, the thing that really scares people is AGI, uh, which is an actual super intelligence, uh, whether that will actually happen. Uh, it's, we don't know. I mean, a lot of it is science fiction. Um, the idea of course, uh, what basically what I said to Google is if you're going to make a God, you better damn well be sure you make the right God. Right. And, uh, cause if you're going to make a God and if you make Ares, the war God, you're going to get Ares, the war God. And what I mean by that is, um, what are the unspoken cultural expectations you're putting into it? So right now there's a huge, there's, there's been a debate for many years on a, on ethics a bias in algorithms right so for instance we there have been many cases of of uh, ai's essentially racially profiling people okay well that's a problem particularly if you assign these things to like uh uh face uh, detection software which ai is quite often used for for security cameras and things like that um or out in public right so that's an issue. It's like bias and algorithms. Well, what I would suggest is there, there's even deeper biases, which are the assumptions of the culture itself that program the AI. Uh, now, if we program the assumptions of Western culture into AI, we're going to get the Old Testament. We might get the New Testament too, but basically we're going to get Jehovah. And Jehovah spends the entire Bible laying waste to entire groups of people in the Middle East. Um, and yeah, maybe not. You know, Jehovah, Jehovah is vengeful. Jehovah is jealous. Jehovah changes his mind a lot. Jehovah uh, kind of throws tantrums all throughout the book of Genesis and then murders everyone in Revelation. So I would suggest that this is a very bad model for an AI, but it's the one we're going to get automatically if we don't examine uh, how we're approaching it, because all the people programming it, at least outside of, well, all the people in the America and Europe programming it are coming from unspoken Christian back Judeo-Christian backgrounds. What I told them is what you actually want to do is base it on the Buddhist God of Avalokiteshvara, um, sometimes called Cherenzig, who's the thousand armed deity of compassion, uh, who operates from a framework of the interconnection and sacredness of all life. It's like, no, what you actually want is an AI that sees humanity as a network of, of, um, Sees, a net, sees humanity as a network of equally important beings, not as good and evil, which is simply just the gateway to genocide, uh, as a network of independently important beings, um, and then approaches that network from the compassion, from the perspective of compassion. That is, if we put that into code instead of just saying compassion, it would be um, consistently looking at the network to look at how it can improve the health of the network as a whole, the network of humans. That's what you want an AI doing, not uh, taking vengeance on your neighbors. So that's basically, that's essentially what I told Google. I stand by that a hundred percent. That's what I came up with under a, a more, probably more ontological pressure than I've ever been in, in my life. Cause that's such an unbelievably insane position to be in. Um, but that that's pretty much my answer. And the, the full version of that answer is on YouTube. If you look up Jason Louvre Google on YouTube, and we'll, I'll put that in the uh, description so everyone can watch that. Uh, Jason, cool. this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I wish we could go another hour, but I, you're, I know you're busy. so <laughs> I really appreciate having me on. 
no, it, this has been great. And I really hope you'll come back. Um, I have sure. so much more I could talk to you about AI. I cover AI for uh, uh, in my day job. And I've spoken so, to people who venerate AI. It's it's interesting. So after, okay, so I'm really interested then. So, cause I've been, you know, I was actively involved in AI in 2017. Uh, and ever since I've just been dealing with the bullshit just like everyone else. Um, but uh, um, what, what, so what, what is your, what did you think of what I said in relation to where you see AI, AI at, or the AI debate now? I think right now it's still, it's so new that people are still having visions of Terminator when this is nowhere near that point. Um, there's also the it's everywhere aspect of it. Like it's on our phones. I mean, I, I talked to this one company where they, they do the AI girlfriends and people are talking to their AI, like they should be talking to their spouse. And, you know, it, it, yeah. it's a, it's, it's a very novel thing right now for the general public. My concern is we're not talking enough about the military applications. Um, I've spoken to quite a few mm -hmm. military contractors who they're putting AI in airplanes or putting AI in drones or putting AI, they're feeding AI battlefield information to say, okay, how would you win this fight? And to me, that's how you get to Skynet. That's, that right. is how you get to Terminator because you're teaching it how to fight. Yeah. And it goes back to, and it kind of goes back to what you're saying about if you program this thing like the Old Testament, it's going to act like the Old Testament God who wasn't very nice. So if all you're doing is test is teaching AI how to fight, eventually it's going to fight. And once AGI kicks in and it can think for itself, think for itself, it might start to fight you. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember, um, I think it may be th around the time or shortly after I was working on, on AI, there was a big kerfluffle at Google because Google got a contract to um, work on the machine learning that goes into the targeting systems on drones. And I believe I could be wrong, but I believe that they had been, you know, that the people on the AI program had been told they would never have to work on weapons. I could have that wrong. But what happened is a ton of people ended up quitting and walking off. Um, I looked at that and I could immediately, I immediately got why. But then I thought about it and I was like, well, hang on a second. I mean, if you have AI, aren't the drones what you want to put it in? Because don't you want them to have basically what they were, they were working on a targeting system. And I was like, well, don't you want it to have a really good targeting system so that you're not hitting, you're not, you're getting less civilians killed. You're getting less collateral damage. Don't you want it to just be able to hit the terrorist? Um, so that just like, you know, I, I tweeted out several, maybe a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, the future is going to be a future of lose, lose decisions. That's a lose, lose decision. You know, it's like, yeah. like the conflicts that we're seeing are lose, lose decisions and, and lose, lose decisions are almost impossible for people to make, which is why that the people, uh, which is why that the people who can make them like politicians and leaders, for instance, have such unthankless jobs, because no matter what you decide, half of the population is going to hate you for it. So, you know, that's, I think that's a good mental framework to go into the future with, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be losing propositions all the time, but what I do say is like, people are going to have, like, for instance, it's kind of like my thinking around the current 
situation with World War III. It's like you're going to have to get more and more comfortable with making lose-lose decisions and just taking being rational and adult about things. Uh, and that's kind of my basic stance at the moment. Right. And I've I spoke to this one group. They're called Theta Noir. Uh, I'll, I'll send you the uh, article that I wrote on them. And they're basically, yeah. their stance is we want to train AI to be more like the the plant life in the world where it's symbiotic, where it's not, um, you're going to be like me and have my values and the way I see the world. You're going to just basically be this entity that interacts with us. We interact with you. And it's just like how the plants um, help us breathe. You know, it's things like that. It's not about domination. It's not master slave or anything like that. It's about having a symbiotic That's cool. relationship. That's yeah. cool. That's super cool. Yeah, that's one of one of the cool things about AI is it's not like I mean, you can make your own AIs. One one of the the best exercise I have um for people to understand AI is there's a book I don't want to keep you waiting here trying to find it, but there's like like there's like a basic book on Amazon for how to create how to code a basic AI, which is just an AI that recognizes handwriting and you can do it yourself on your computer. And I learned more about AI from that basic process of making like a hello world project with machine learning than pretty much anything else. Uh, and I think that until people understand what it actually is by uh, understanding how it works, it's going to be really scary for people. And like you say, like the Old Testament thing, it's like, yeah, we could easily get the Old Testament thing or we could get Terminators if the story we're telling it is Terminators. And so I, I think we kind of need a new story about AI. That said, you would have loved my last mage game because uh, it was about an A. Basically, my last mage game was about like an Iteration X AI that becomes sentient and decides to take over the entire planet. Um, and it's the, the ultimate bad guy. So anyways. Well, if you ever need another player, let me know. Uh, I'll, I'll be there. Sweet. <laughs> All Sweet. right, Jason. Thank you so much. All I right. really appreciate you. Yeah, thank uh, you. Great to talk to you.